again, church. Uh, take your Bible and go to Ezra chapter 9 if you brought it. Otherwise, I'll put the words on the screen here in just a little bit. Ezra, the ninth chapter, in a few minutes, we'll start reading somewhere around verse 5. About 20 years ago, the year was 1998, uh, Grace Community Church was just getting started. And uh, a man by the name of Dr. William Bennett wrote a book. Now, if you don't know the name William Bennett, uh, you're probably not old enough like me. Um, William Bennett was the Secretary of Education under President Ronald Reagan. Uh, he was the one that, that started the drug war in America. Uh, he's a big kind of heavyset fellow with a really cool, deep voice. Uh, he is a conservative commentator on, on CNN to this day and, and Fox News. You'll see him as a talking head there on the broadcast. Um, he's a conservative Catholic in his faith. And 20 years ago, he wrote a book entitled The Death of Outrage in America. Now, I read the book, and I thoroughly enjoyed the book, because as a minister, many of its uh, precepts, its principles, were, were common knowledge to a student of this book. The Death of Outrage in America. In that book, Dr. Bennett claims that for 30 or 40 years, there's been this call to centrism in America. Uh, this, this watering down of absolute moral truth to the point that we're no longer outraged by any kind of perversion or any sort of behavior. The death of outrage means because of political correctness where you're not allowed to make any judgments of anyone or anything beside yourself and this relativism, this call to centrism, that morally we've lost our way and we're no longer outraged at the perversion, culturally or otherwise, that's all around us. Now, fast forward 20 years to today. There is, again, another conservative commentator out there. He's got a radio show and, and he's an author of many books. He appears on television. His name is Glenn Beck. And Glenn Beck has written a book and the title of it is Addicted to Outrage. Now, in, Dr. in uh, Glenn Beck's book, he focuses on our need to be outraged in America. We're addicted to outrage. It's driven primarily by, by social media and, and getting my viewpoint out there, getting my, getting my beliefs out there. We're actually addicted to outrage. We are quick in America to point that judgmental finger at someone whose ideals we oppose. So on the one hand, 20 years ago, we've got the death of outrage in America and today, we've got addicted to outrage. Uh, well, which is it? What do you think? Which is it? Is outrage dead in America, or has it become so commonplace that we're all addicted to it and we just don't know it? Well, if I had to answer that question, I would say it's both. I would say that over the course of my adult lifetime, the idea of outrage, shame, has morphed into something completely different. I don't know if you know this or not, but 40 years ago, when I was 10 years old, my parents felt very comfortably sending me or my sister to any home in our neighborhood to play with their kids, because while they may be of a different political persuasion, there was one thing you could count on in our neighborhood 40 years ago. Those parents, even if my parents didn't know them all that well, my parents could count on those parents as sharing a very similar, similar value, virtue, and moral fiber as them. In other words, 40 years ago, as a parent, I could count on my neighbor, regardless of how well I knew them, 
to basically support, morally speaking, the things that I stand up for. That neighbor was my ally, and that neighbor was my ally, and that neighbor down the end of the road was my ally, but you can't say that anymore in America, even in small town America. I believe that outrage regarding moral perversion, the twisted perversion that's so pervasive in American culture, that's long since dead. Political correctness has forced us all to sit down and shut up. Don't say anything about some lifestyle, some behavior that you believe God's word teaches is completely out of bounds, that's harmful to society. You better not say that. At the same time, however, again, I think because of political correctness, outrage regarding politics has never been stronger. I mean, you support the wrong candidate in our culture today, and you're liable to be run out of a restaurant. You know, you put the wrong sign in your front yard, you're liable to come home one day, it's on fire, right? You sign up for the wrong political party, support the wrong candidate, blue or red, and you're liable to have people showing up in your front yard, banging on your front door. You may actually feel threatened by your neighbor because outrage politically, I don't think it's ever been stronger, at least not in my lifetime. Now, Last time we noted that God's mission for Ezra in the book of Ezra was twofold. The first thing God wanted them to do was return to Jerusalem and rebuild that temple. For 70 long years, they've been in exile, first under Babylon and now under Persia. But the Persian king, Cyrus, gives them the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their capital. They're going to start with the temple. They're going to rebuild the temple. Then they're going to rebuild the city wall around it. The other part of that mission was to revive the people. Now, up until this point, we spent four messages on part one, all about rebuilding the temple. But by the time we get to Ezra chapter nine, the temple's already built. It's been built almost to its original glory and grandeur. It's beautiful. It's not the same as when Solomon built it a thousand years earlier or so, or excuse me, 500 years earlier or so, but it is beautiful. Uh, and yet now Ezra is returning with another group of exiles and God's mission for him is to revive the spiritual condition of his nation. Now, I put this big chart on the, uh, the screen last week. I want to do it again because it gives you an idea of the chronology of this book. If you sit down and try to read this book cover to cover or from the first chapter to the last, you might get a little confused as to how things are working and how things are moving because not all the book falls in chronological order. There are dozens of years between certain chapters and so just to help you kind of follow along, here's how the book uh, uh, falls out. The very first return of exiles, 50,000 plus to Jerusalem, came under a man by the name of Zerubbabel. As soon as they got there and they went to work on the temple, they faced opposition from the locals. They tried to shut down the project. But remember, we made a big deal about this. It wasn't facing the opposition that caused them to shut down the project. It was the fact that because of the opposition, they lost their focus, their commitment waned, and the project was shut down. When they lost their focus, two men stepped up, one by the name of Haggai and one by the name of Zechariah. They inspired these uh, builders, and eventually, after it was shut down, construction resumed. But as soon as it resumed for the second time, and we covered this last time from chapters 4 through 6, opposition rose once again. This time, however, they took the project on to completion. And then Ezra, still in Babylon or the capital of Persia at that time, 
leads a second wave of exiles to Jerusalem, and it's his focus to revive the spiritual temperature of the nation. And then finally, it actually happens in the next book under Nehemiah. There's a third return. Now, I don't want to sound like some kind of old-fashioned preacher, and when I say things like I'm going to say today, some of you are going to probably roll your eyes. Some of you watching online are probably going to turn it off because you're going to disagree with many of the statements I'll make today from Ezra chapter 9. But I want you to stop and pause for a moment and ask yourself, in what kind of culture do we exist? I personally believe we live in a decadent culture. Um, Without sounding like your father or your grandfather, I just want to back up a little bit. Things that that shocked us as teenagers 40 years ago are commonplace in Main Stream today. I can go home this afternoon, and on my DirecTV satellite system, I can pull up any kind of perversion you want to see. I can find much of it on free television. And many decades ago, actually even fewer than you think, those things would not have been accepted. Perversion is all around us, church. And I'm reminded of one of my favorite theologians, a preacher by the name of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He warned of losing our, quote, dread of evil in one of his sermons. Dread, that's not a word we use very often today, certainly in that context. But he warned of of followers of Jesus Christ losing their, quote, dread of evil. He went on to write, Because we have become so desensitized towards sin, we fail to have the proper response toward it. Whether it's our sin or the sin of others, we minimize it, we justify it, we ignore it, and we go on our way unaffected by it. Well, church, that's exactly what was happening to the God's people in Ezra's day. Our text, Ezra chapter 9, relates Ezra's reaction to the sin of this second wave of exiles. Because within four and a half months of their returning to Jerusalem, they were breaking one of God's most important commandments. You see, back up almost a thousand years to the time of Joshua. And Joshua is going to go into the promised land and conquer it for Israel. Uh, God gave them very specific instructions. Now, when you go in, you're going to drive out the inhabitants. That's the part of the Bible where you read about Hittites and Amorites and Jebusites and Amalekites and everybody else. So you're going to drive them out, and if you can't drive them out, you're going to kill them, God says. People say, Mike, there's a lot of death, a lot of brutality in the book of Joshua. How could a loving God instruct his own army to go in and slaughter these races of people? Let me help you understand that for a moment. The Bible makes it clear in the book of Exodus, as well as other places, that God gave those inhabitants 400 years to come to their senses, 400 years to change their ways. Now remember, these were peoples who sacrificed newborn babies. These were peoples who took multiple wives to be their own, including someone else's 10-year-old child. These were people whose lives were steeped in perversion, contradiction, lives that were steeped in evil. And God said, I've tried for 400 years to get them to turn around, and they won't. So Joshua, when you go in there, Two rules, push them out, rule number one. And number two, above all, don't marry them. Don't marry them. Don't go into business with them. Well, guess what? In Ezra chapter nine, 
four and a half months after this second wave of exiles come back to their homeland, Jerusalem, that's exactly what the people were doing. Believe it or not, even the priests were doing it. It was one simple command. It had been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, and yet they had broken it and were continuing to break it. Now, how did Ezra respond to it? Well, you know, you really can't judge another person's life choices. That's not what Ezra said. Well, you know, people are going to be people. I mean, after all, nobody's perfect. That's not at all how Ezra responded. In fact, if you read verse 3, when Ezra found out that a huge number of God's people had broken this important rule, he threw himself down and tore his clothing and pulled hair from his head, hair from his beard, and mourned all afternoon until evening sacrifice. That's where we pick up his prayer of confession, which, by the way, verses 5 through 15, Ezra's confession for his nation. And keep in mind, Ezra wasn't guilty of this sin. The people were. Ezra chapter 9, verses 5 through 15, Ezra's confession ranks right up there with the top four confessions recorded in the Bible. David's confession over his sin with Bathsheba, Psalm 51. Uh, Daniel's confession in Daniel chapter 9 for the sins, the great sins of the people. Nehemiah's great confession, again, for the sins of the people in Nehemiah chapter 9. In Ezra chapter 9, what we're about to read is Ezra's prayer of confession. Read with me, beginning in verse 5. Then at the evening sacrifice, Ezra writes, that would have been about 3 p.m. He's been there all day, prostrate, face to the ground, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and my cloak torn. I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God. Now, stop for a minute, church, because if you saw someone doing that, you'd say, hey, what's he doing? Oh, he's asking God's forgiveness. He's confessing his sin before God. How would you respond? Hey, I'd respond. Well, that's a little excessive. You know, throw yourself to the ground, down on your knees. What if I came in here on a Sunday and I said, church, before I get started, I just need to tell you, I just cussed a man out at the quickie mart up there when I was buying my Diet Coke. He cut me off and I drug him out of that car. And I was, if I, my wife hadn't been there, I was going to, and then when I told you, what if I fell to the ground and I threw my hands to the sky And I said, Lord, wouldn't you think, that's a little excessive, Mike. That's a little dramatic. We're not that kind of church. Isn't that what you'd think? Right? Now, let me ask you a question. How does sin affect you? When you know you've dishonored God, what kind of reaction do you have? We're about to read Ezra's reaction. I spread my hands out wide. I looked to the Lord my God and I prayed, verse 6. I am too ashamed and disgraced. The Hebrew words could be translated, I'm too embarrassed and humiliated. Again, what if someone saw your sin? What if they had some kind of special glasses and they could see what kind of things you turn over in your mind? And you knew it. What if someone caught you in that dark place? How would you feel? I'd feel ashamed and disgraced. 
I'd feel embarrassed and humiliated. Well, listen, church, God sees everyone. Jesus, who bore our sin in his body on the cross, Jesus sees everyone. Ezra was embarrassed for himself and his people. Keep reading. I'm too ashamed, I'm too disgraced, my God, to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens from the days of our ancestors until now. He's talking about the days of Joshua and Moses when they gave, when God gave them the commandment. Our guilt has been great because of our sins. Don't miss that part. It's because of our sins that we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword in captivity. Okay, stop. Realize what he's saying. He's saying, I know why we're in this tough spot. I know why we spent 70 years in captivity. I know why Israel is a small remnant. We'll get to that word in a moment. Compared to what she used to be in her glorious days of King David and Solomon. I know why. It's because of our sins. It's because of our infidelity. It's because of our adultery. It's because of our impurity. It's because of our envy. It's because of our bitterness. It's because of our sin that we have died and remained in captivity to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings like Babylon and Syria, as it is today. Verse 8. But now, for a brief moment... The Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant. There's the word. The group of exiles returning to Jerusalem is a tiny fraction of what they once were in their glory days under Kings David and Solomon. He left us a tiny remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief to our bondage. Verse 9. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. If you have the New Living Translation, your Bible reads, In his unfailing love, God has not abandoned us. In spite of the fact that I'm in bondage to my sin, I've promised 15 times I wouldn't do it again, and each time I broke down in spite of my sin. In his unfailing love, he has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness. That word could be translated mercy. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now our God, what can we say after all of this? Like, What is there to say? You gave us one simple rule and we couldn't keep it. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commands that you gave us through your servants, the prophets, when you said, the land that you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. Okay, pause. Here's where I sound like an old-fashioned preacher. Church, open your eyes. America is a land polluted by its inhabitants. We have done, in my estimation, as bad or worse in this land, in our culture, as Ezra's people did in theirs. 
It's polluted by the corruption of its peoples, but their detestable practices or by them, they have filled it with impurity from one end to the other. Well, that's an image you can get your mind around. That's like saying from New York to Los Angeles, we have polluted our culture. Incidentally and ironically, it's 2,500 miles from New York to Los Angeles as the crow flies. 2,500 years ago that Ezra wrote those words and prayed that prayer. Verse 12, therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it, leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is the result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserve and have given us a remnant like this, proving once again that ours is a God of great and lasting mercy. Here's the big idea today, and I put it in the program. God's unfailing love is what drives him to reclaim us when we turn from our sin. It's God's unfailing love that drives him to reclaim us as his own when we turn from our sin. Have you ever felt like this? You saw someone, their actions on television as recorded or reported by the news. Maybe it's someone you know who serves on a school board or works in the community, and you thought to yourself after what they've just done, shame on them. Shame on them. They ought to be ashamed of themselves. You ever feel like that? Wouldn't it be nice to tune into the evening news and, and see the perp sit down at the, the press conference, and lean into the microphone and say, I am so sorry. Oh, this is all on me. Please forgive me. That was way out of bounds. I am prepared to do whatever is necessary to make that right. We never hear that, do we? But now listen, church. The purpose of this message in Ezra chapter 9 is not to ask whether you've ever heard it, but whether you've ever said it. Have you ever reacted that way, God, for your sin? Or the sin of someone in your family? Or even the sin of a nation. Do you ever say, God, forgive me. I'm embarrassed. I'm so ashamed. I'm going to do everything in my power to make this right. Most of us don't. You see, the reaction we wish we could see from other people is what God is looking for in us, church. And you'll never experience God at work in your life until you're broken regarding your own sin. So, from that famous prayer of confession, let me just point out a few things and I'll quit. Here's number one. It is the Bible that reveals sin in our lives. Did you notice verse 10? In verse 10 when I read it, but now our God, what can we say after this? He gave us one rule and we broke it. He goes on, we have forsaken your commands. You gave us one rule. Don't marry the pagans. Give us one rule. And we couldn't do that. Here's the way Paul puts it in Romans chapter 1. Paul says of humanity that we are without excuse. And watch out because God is getting angry. 
Ezra was appalled when he heard about this sin. So much so that he pulled hair from his head and plucked his beard and he, he threw himself on the ground. He sat there all day. Again, don't misunderstand. This is not a racial prohibition. This wasn't about, oh, God doesn't want you to marry someone of another race or God doesn't want you to marry someone of another kind of civilization or, or, or ethnic persuasion. No, it has nothing to do with that. This is all about a moral prohibition. So when Ezra pours out his heart before God in this prayer of confession, he does so on behalf of all the people and even himself, even though he wasn't guilty of the same sin. Let me ask you a question. Very simple question. How do you know what's right and what's wrong? How do you know? Okay. How do you know what's right or what is wrong? Uh, Remember this one? It can't be wrong when it feels so right. Remember that one? Okay. Some of you aren't aren't old enough to remember that one. Uh, As a follower of Jesus Christ, I hope you understand right and wrong is not determined by how you feel about it. You get that, right? Come on, church, let's open our eyes. Here's what we've got. God's word, the inspired, holy word of God, can clear up so many issues, every bit as relevant today as they were in Ezra's day. And what do we do? We forsake it in favor of feelings, of circumstance, of whether or not this will expedite or advance my cause or popular opinion. Well, Pastor Mike, nobody believes that anymore. That's never been my determination for what's right or wrong. How about yours? The Bible reveals two things. It reveals what sin is and it reveals what sin does. Now, when we talk about sin, it's a word we don't use very often, even in this church. You know, you come in on Sundays, I don't beat you over the head about your sin, right? It's never my goal to make you feel guilty when you leave. But what is sin according to this book? Sin is not mistakes according to this book. Sin is evil according to this book. It's bondage according to this book. It's ruinous slavery according to this book. What does sin do? Sin will separate you from your heavenly father. It's like having a fight with your spouse, and for several days, things just aren't right in the house. Well, that's what sin does between you and God. Remember David's sin with Bathsheba? David's great sin with Bathsheba was costing him greatly, and he recognized it. He understood, like we should understand, that when we choose sin, no matter how well we can excuse or explain it, when we choose sin over God, the relationship we have with God breaks down. So don't play with it. It's poisonous. I'd rather live without a cell phone. Boy, this is going to sound old-fashioned. Instead of having it catch me in its bondage. If I can't contain myself, I'd rather live without some things that so many of us in our culture think are indispensable. Old preacher, I... I had in school, he would say, young people, remember, sin will always take you farther than you want to go. It'll always keep you longer than you want to stay there. And it'll cost you a whole lot more than you want to pay. Gang, that's what sin is. And we learn about that from this book. 
Uh, here's, here's something else to consider. The proper reaction to sin is shame. Shame is like a four-letter word in modern culture. We're not supposed to ever be ashamed because there's always an explanation. There's always a way of self-identifying myself out of the shame, right? But according to this book, the proper reaction to sin is shame. In verse 6, what did he say? I am too ashamed. I'm too disgraced to look at you. Again, how do you react when sin enters your life? When Ezra heard of the sin of God's people, he tore his robe. He pulled hair from his head. One of my commentators in my library, he wrote, it is partly because sin does not provoke our own wrath that we do not believe sin provokes the wrath of God, and it does. You see, I believe that's one of the reasons so many churched people, so many followers of Christ never experience true joy in their faith walk. It's because they've never come face to face. They've never been convicted. They've never felt shame for their sin. The two are closely related. You need to understand that. Again, from C.H. Spurgeon. Spurgeon wrote, We have failed to see that we must be convicted of sin before we can ever experience joy. Now, what do we want in culture? We want joy. We want, we call it happiness. I just want to be happy. But look, I want to be happy apart from any conviction of sin. But that's impossible, church, according to this book. It can't be obtained. You see, conviction, what the Bible calls repentance, turning away. Conviction is an essential preliminary to conversion. How does the process of salvation occur? It first begins with recognition that I am a sinner, not a mistaker. Not I'll do better next time. Not surely understand, God, if you just give me one more chance. That's not the way the Bible portrays me in comparison with holy God. It says I'm a sinner, and I'm supposed to recognize that sin, and I'm supposed to turn from that sin because that sin, bring, sin brings me shame. That's what the Scripture teaches. And I think that's what could be costing you your joy. Listen, I am convinced that it's one of the reasons young people are leaving churches by the millions across this land of ours. Do you realize that younger generations, in younger generations, shame and guilt are often more offensive than any other kind of twisted perversion you could name? You see, we're not supposed to ever feel ashamed of something we've done, right? That's not what this book teaches. Thank God my mom didn't raise or rear me that way. Young people across this land have come into churches unhumbled. They have no shame for anything. All their actions can be explained or justified. They sit for a while, remaining unhumbled, and eventually they walk away unhumbled. According to this book, not just Ezra 9, the proper reaction to sin is shame, church. Shame. The last thing I'll show you is the proper response to sin is confession. That's what we read is a prayer of confession. You know what confession is? Three quick things. Confession acknowledges that God's right and I'm wrong. That's where you start. Notice that 
When Ezra prayed, he affirms, God, you're right, you're right. That's why we're in this situation. You're right, we're wrong. Number two, confession submits without complaints or excuses. At no time in that prayer of confession did you notice Ezra never blamed anybody else. He never tried to minimize what the nation had done. And number three, confession always counts on Christ. Confession always counts on Christ because he's our only hope. No, at no time during the prayer did Ezra say, okay, God, look, I'll make a deal with you. Give me one more chance. We won't do it ever again. No, he threw himself on the mercy, the unfailing love, the loving kindness of God Almighty. Let me ask you something, church. What, what would you think of a doctor who, let's say you, you, you take your folks to the doctor and you sit down, the, the doctor has a test in his hand that says, mom's got cancer. But the doctor walked in and says, despite what the test says, puts his arm around your mom, hey, honey, cheer up. You're going to be fine. We're not going to worry about this. You'd go find another doctor, wouldn't you? What, what, if, what if your house was on fire? You got your family out in the yard and you're watching everything you own burn. You call the fire department, fire truck rolls up, sirens blazing, big red truck, guys get out. Fireman says, ah, it's really not that bad. Don't worry about it. Well, what, if, what if someone broke in your home or place of business, you dial 911, the cops come roaring in, sirens blazing, everything you've worked hard for is being taken before your very eyes, the cops pull you to the side and says, well, you know, boys will be boys. Hey, who are we to judge their life choices? You'd move to another town with a better police force, wouldn't you? See, those are improper reactions to situations. Listen, according to this book, shame is the proper reaction to sin, and confession is the only way to respond to it. My mom was famous for, for one tool of discipline. Whenever I had done something out of bounds and maybe it was going to be, wait till your father gets home or when your daddy gets home, we're going to decide your punishment. Here's what she would say. She would say, now go to your room and think about what you've done. Any of you parents use that one? That's a good one. I'm here to tell you that's a good one. Look, it's not only good parenting advice because as an eight-year-old, by the time dad got home that evening, came in my room to discuss the punishment. We're going to get a spanking this time, son, or taking no phone calls for a week, or can't go out with your friends this weekend, or no spend a night company on Friday night, or whatever it was. Before any of that happened, guess what? I had already gone down mentally the road of shame, remorse, regret, determination. I'm never going to do this again because I don't want to go through this again, right? Well, it's also good advice for your faith walk. It's also good advice for your faith walk. Sometimes we need to sit down and think about what we've done. But then remember, hasten to remember that we serve a loving, merciful God who is unfailing in his kindness. I'm going to give you a chance to do that right now. Uh, while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, John's going to come up and strum on the guitar a little bit. Because here's what we're trying to do. When we leave here today, I didn't step up here today to make you feel guilty. When we leave here today, the plan is we need to strike a better balance between shame and remorse over my sin before God and acceptance of the grace he offers in return. And if we can somehow accept that for ourselves, maybe we can give that to others. J.C. Ryle 
says, Christ is never fully valued until my sin is clearly seen. Along comes C.S. Lewis and says, when a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that's still in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. God, make us a church. Make us a community. Make us a nation that recognizes we're broken on the inside. And our only hope is to throw ourselves upon the mercy of a God who is unfailing in his love. Father, I hope that when we leave here today, we may strike a better balance between remorse, shame, regret for our failure and our sin, and love, appreciation, celebration for the grace, the forgiveness you're willing to offer when we confess. Father, may what we so long to see in others, regret, Remorse, repentance. Father, may you say that in us. All of these things we pray, Father, because you've instructed us to do so through your son, Jesus Christ, who is our mercy. Thank you for that name. Thank you for that blood. Thank you for that sacrifice and thank you for that resurrection. All of these things are prayed because of him with much thanksgiving and gratitude. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. Hope you got there. Make it a fantastic week. I will see you next time.